Newsflash people, I'm picky about sponsors. You all know about Horizon Books, serving Seattle's book-loving community for 48 years with one of the best collections of used books in the region. I love them. I get stuff there. I record this podcast there. What better endorsement? We're also doing this episode in partnership with The Williams Project, presenting Tony Kushner's A Bright Room Called Day. That's uh, started last Friday. I went to opening night at the Hillman City Collaboratory, set among ordinary Berliners living through Hitler's rise to power. This galvanizing political drama poses timely questions about citizenship, resistance, and complicity. All performances are pay what you can. Reserve tickets and learn more at thewilliamsproject.org. Check them out. This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books and Tony Kushner's Bright Room Called Day. And this is UpZones. Things are changing. Things are changing. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself Things are changing. It's that time again. Election season. Does it feel different every time to people who care as much as I do? Or does it just feel different this time? Or does it feel different because it's been two years and I forget how savage it felt last time? Just as a recap with all the dire warnings about global warming, all the detentions at the border, family separations, all the corruption in government, steamrolling an unqualified potentially sexual assailant onto the Supreme Court. It it feels pretty different, huh? It feels pretty savage. And then you're in Seattle, as most of my listeners are, and it starts to feel like, well, maybe we can't do anything. Maybe there's no difference we can make. Some folks up in the 8th or over in the 5th, maybe you can make a difference. Some state ledge votes. And it's funny because I am not the biggest fan of the ballot initiative. I think it's easy to abuse. I think it is a large part of the reason, in game theory terms, why the headcount tax was overturned. The threat of a ballot initiative hanging over the city council. But I think the ballot initiative may be our reason as Seattleites and King Countyites and Western Seattleites or Western Washingtonians to be happy and to be, anyway, hopeful. Happy maybe on the 7th. Which is different. It's different this year. There aren't many races, contentious races, to really talk about or think about in this area. You know, there's no... Jayapal Walkinshaw, where it's what's the best progressive and that person's going to be in Congress for 10 years or more. There's no mayor's race because those are on odd years. There's no president. There's a pretty uncontested Senate race. If you're voting in Schreier versus Rossi and you're listening, I mean, obviously, I hope you pick Dr. Schreier, but I, I know not many of you probably are. But ballot initiatives this year, and again, I, I refer back to the fact that I don't always support them, and I think they have some pretty significant cons, not the content of what any individual ballot initiative says, but the institution and uh, ongoing practice of ballot initiatives. But this year, we've got some humdingers, man. And yes, I'm talking about the content of what they are. Look, I'll say this. We've got a chance to actually make a difference. Right. It's not voting for one candidate. Right. Which at the end of the day, your legislatures and your elected officials make a huge difference because they hold so much power. But the state of Washington has determined. To give us this power in five individual cases, initiative 940, you heard about it because it's common sense. It requires trainings for law enforcement, changes to standards for the use of deadly force, actually passed the legislature, and our friend Tim Iman, who you'll hear about in this episode, decided to take it all the way to the Supreme Court and he got it back on the ballot. Let's make him regret that waste of time. I'm not anti-police, but I am anti-police brutality. 
I'm anti-death at the hands of police. Police should rarely have to kill anyone, let alone innocent and unarmed civilians, both in terms of prevention and in terms of punishment. 940 would enable that. Initiative 1631 establishes a carbon fee and funds environmental programs. It is not a carbon tax. You'll see a lot of commercials. It's not a carbon tax. If you pollute, you pay a fee for it. I don't pay for it. You don't pay for it. And that money doesn't go back into the general fund to get, quote unquote, misspent. That's the canard I hear from a lot of my uh, friends in the middle who aren't sure. They They don't want the government spending all that money. Well, they can only spend it on fighting global warming. So we're we're good, man. We're good. Initiative 1634 is a disaster. It prohibits local governments from enacting taxes on groceries is what it says, but we know who it's paid for. Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper. I like those drinks sometimes too, especially with pizza, but I don't want their policies in my law. So I'll be voting now. Initiative 1639, it implements changes to gun ownership and purchase requirements. This is small potatoes. It's not a big deal one way or the other, but I will be voting yes. I think it's the right thing to do. And then when King County, we have an education initiative as well that I will be voting yes on. I think pre-K is an important part of how you create an enlightened populace. And if an enlightened populace is not interesting to you, well... I don't know. I'm not really clear why you're listening to my show. In any event, I I really, really, really looked forward to interviewing Professor Hugh Spitzer. He's a UW Law professor, longtime political activist. It's amazing how many of the things that we talked about that he then, in the interview, said, oh, yeah, I'm doing something with them. I'm consulting. I did that. I know that guy. He's been around forever. He's a bit of a political moderate, slightly left of center, uh, doesn't doesn't see eye to eye with me on density upzoning. Uh, I think he's a extends a bit too much benefit of the doubt, frankly, to the current Republican base, uh, uh, especially when he says things like you should go out of your way to find middle ground with them. But he's incredibly smart, and I talk about ballot initiatives because he knows more about the Washington state constitution than possibly anyone. As you'll hear in in the interview, he literally wrote the book that law students who study the Washington constitution study. That's him. He really understands the roots of this state's political environment and where we come from, why we make some of the decisions we do as a state around power and decision-making And he loves what he does, and he's passionate, and he is open-minded, and he is progressive, and he does want transit, and he does want justice, and he does want a progressive tax structure in the city, finally. And as we go into election day and election week, I think it's helpful to have a good sense of where we come from, why we put so many things on the initiative process versus send it to the legislature, and what that really means for our state. Are you, have you been here your whole life? No. I was born in Seattle, but I uh, actually grew up in Berkeley. Okay. And oh, then I okay. also got an uh, advanced law degree at, at UC Berkeley. And if I'm not mistaken, the, I mean, that would have been maybe right around the time when there was just peak social disruption. Right. I was in high school during the free speech movement. What, what was that specifically 1964 there? 1964 through 66. That was, uh, that was a protest against, uh, well, it was a number of things. One specifically was a protest against the university's hesitancy to let people have all the demonstrations they wanted. Mm-hmm. But much more uh, focused was the concern about uh, this huge university with gigantic classes and just cranking people out Mm, and mm -hmm. um, also underpaying graduate students. And it was very complicated. That sounds like it could have been ripped out of 2018 in many respects. uh, In some respects, yeah. yeah. So you were there. And then I I know you're 
it's not a, a an exaggeration to say you literally wrote the book on the Washington State Constitution. Law students read your book right. very often. Um, they do. So does that come from, I mean, is that from just years of, now you've, since you moved back, you've just kind of, that's what you've been studying forever? Well, um, no. So uh, I wound up going to law school here and I worked for two or three years in a firm that represents labor unions and I did labor and civil rights work. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I didn't enjoy litigation. So, How come? Uh, Why not? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is some people like litigation and some people don't. Mm. If I like working with people in a collaborative fashion, litigation tends not to be that. Yeah, sure. Uh, it tends to be... Uh, tends to be working in a pathological situation where things have fallen apart. And so it's kind of weird. It's uh, mm. more fun to work. Right, with you litigate people. when something's broken. It ten, that tends to be the case. Right, right. So okay. it's for me, it's more fun not to fight with people or be around people who are grumpy, but rather, uh, you know, work with people to make things happen. So I quit doing that. I was perfectly good at it. It just wasn't fun. The other reason was. Uh, I, I did civil rights litigation, uh, sex and race discrimination cases, but uh, they were based on the 1965 Civil Rights Act, and I realized that I was just kind of carrying out an existing policy, and I wanted to get into more direct policy work. Mm -hmm. I was also involved in tra as a transportation activist for mass transit around here in Seattle. Were you here the first time we said no? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Oh. That was that was sixty nine yeah. when the Boeing yeah. bust occurred, and I was still in college. I see. And we've had so many chances here to get it right on transportation. We, we have. We're doing a little better these days. That's right. Uh, but it's taken a long time. But I was working on a plan on a proposal <clears throat> to. Uh, basically pull federal money out of the I-90 rebuild across Mercer Island to mm -hmm. Bellevue, which was going to cost, eight, and did cost, $1 billion per mile. This was in the 70s? This was in the 70s. Wow. Okay. So it was real money yeah. back oh, yeah. then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to use a federal statute that would enable people to, in a community, to basically withdraw money for federal highways and then substitute a mass transit project. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to get a mixed project across I-90, which would have uh, three lanes of vehicle traffic in each direction and two transit lanes in the middle. Yes. <laughs> sounds familiar. This is now 40 years yeah, later. Right. Uh, and we finally are getting there. Yeah. But uh, we were unsuccessful, and they, and they built I-90. Uh, at the time, we were able to project that for the, the cost of building I-90 and, and the lid across Mercer Island, because that tunnel you go through on Mercer Island is all made by people. Mm -hmm. And so for the cost of doing all that, we could have purchased every piece of private property on Mercer Island, moved all those people to Seattle, put them in condos, turned Mercer Island into a park, and put mass transit across to wow. Bellevue. Wow. Um, and we did that calculation just to make a point. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Today you couldn't do that because of the increase in uh, property values. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, I worked on that. And then Charlie Royer got elected mayor. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the meanwhile, I went to work for the city council. I worked there a couple of years okay. for John Miller, who was a progressive, actually a progressive Republican. And uh, there were progressive Republicans back then. What was that? What, how, what, I, I, can you see my yeah. stutter and my head shaking? Right. So, so is that indicative of someone who's maybe a bit more urbane and trying to, you know, gr grow the city and be open-minded, but is like maybe a fiscal conservative? Is that is that the idea? Uh, yeah. Progressive Republicans barely exist. There are a few of them around this state uh, in an organization called Mainstream Republicans. Mm -hmm. And they include Sam Reed, who was recently Secretary of State, 
and uh, and just a handful of people, you know, mm-hmm. great people. Uh, Republicans, of course, uh, in urban areas in the United States, used to be basically up. This is now in the early 20th century, up through the mid 20th century. They were progressive, urban, good on race relations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, fiscally careful, upper middle class. Yeah, right. Virtually all those people are now Democrats. Yeah. Moderate Democrats. Yeah, and the race thing. I mean, you, there's a mid 20th century. Uh, you can tra- you can track the evolution of how the parties effectively switched. Truman right. Truman uh, integrates the military, right. and Nixon decides to right. play the play the race the race card, card in and, order yeah. to yeah. to win politically. Yeah, that yeah. was actually the most yeah. disastrous uh, decision for the country. Yeah, uh, up to the current you know well, you weirdo scenario yeah, now. person that we have in, in the White House. So one thing, you know, just again, thinking about your experience, especially given that you really are now an expert in the Washington State Constitution. Right. I know that the state's founding, which is later in the game in, in mm-hmm. relative American history, mm-hmm. is very steeped in this kind of populism. Right. Right. It's not top down. And there is um, yeah, a perfectly good faith debate about how much populism benefits and and then of course the opposite of course is how much is central planning and right. can we is there really a such thing as an elite that can you know a, a beneficent elite i'm curious how that origin of creating a constitution and creating a state mm-hmm. that is founded on these really devolved principles ballot initiative right etc impacts our current political situation and impacts in your opinion you know uh, the ability to make progress or i guess maybe impede progress so uh, in this state, and actually in the history of the United States, there's a permanent tension between uh, elites and very often well-meaning, educated, thoughtful elites and the broader general public. Mm-hmm. It is permanent. You see it in the tension in the first Philadelphia, in the first Pennsylvania Constitution in the uh, 1770s, between 1776 and 1780, they had a super democratic uh, type of government for four years, just a general assembly, no governor, no, no independent courts, because they were going to be purely democratic. Wow. And it did not work very well. Right. So they actually had to have somebody to to execute the laws and executive. So in 1780, they came in with a new constitution. But you, you see it in the tension between John Adams and John Payne during the Revolution. And then, of course, between the Federalists and the Democratic uh, Jefferson yeah. Democratic Republicans, then the Jacksonian populist movement, small p populist. And then what happened after World War II uh, sorry, <laughs> happened after the Civil War. It, it, a couple of things: you had a a flat money supply because uh, after the Civil War, economists and uh, people in government were pretty aware that a war of that type, which was total war in the United States mm-hmm. in the Civil War, uh, that with all the resources of both sides going into the war effort, that there was a lot of pent up uh, consumer demand. Mm-hmm. So there was a big risk of runaway inflation as money was trying to chase a limited supply of goods as they were trying to get the economy ramped up again uh, for civilian purposes after the Civil War. So Congress made a decision in collaboration with Wall Street and economists to hold the money supply steady, peg it, keep it, go back to pegging it to gold. They'd actually use paper money during the Civil War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Wow, I wasn't aware of that. And then you had a situation where the population of the United States doubled between 1865 and 1900. Was this a, is this a, a post-war baby boom phenomenon that's no, akin to the... No, no, no. Immigration. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, massive immigration. Germany, Ireland, Europe, Poland. Uh, yeah, Eastern Europe, mm, Italy, Italy. Got Slavic it. people. Yeah. Uh, so all these folks are, are coming in. Uh, you have a doubling of the population up till 1900. And the money supply stays completely flat. Mm-hmm. This puts huge pressure on people who are not living 
near money centers like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, mm -hmm. San Francisco. So we're talking about farmers. So this leads, for example, in the South to sharecropping <clears throat> because there's no cash, there's no currency where people can pay rent. Sure. So instead, they pay a share of their crop. In Washington State, in, in a fair amount of the West, you had these jerry-rigged systems where, where farmers, in order to get seeds, would go to the seed company and they would buy seeds on credit and pledge to sell their crop to the seed company at prices then to be determined based on the international price of wheat and hops mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. The seed company was also owned by the same trust that owned the railroad company, the shipping <coughs> company on the Snake and Columbia Rivers, the grain silos, they're all interlocked. And they all worked to try to get as much money they could out of the farmers without putting them out of business. Farmers did not appreciate this. They also didn't appreciate the banks, whom they incorrectly blamed for the money supply problem. So uh, you had a series of political parties, the uh, Greenback Party in the 1870s, which was for a free money supply and paper currency, Farmer Labor Party in the 1880s, and then the People's Party, which is the classic populist. Is party that William Jennings Bryan? In the 90s, right. Mm. So, William Jennings Bryan was a, a fusion candidate of the People's Party and the Democrats mm. uh, in Washington in 1896. That was the year. McKinley. Uh, McKinley beat him. Uh, that's right. But, yeah. he, but William Jennings Bryan swept Washington and was supported by a Democrat, uh, I guess, People's Party, Democratic, and Silver Republican ticket. That's mm -hmm. a free silver I see. Uh, ticket of uh, progressive Republicans. And uh, they swept the state. And we had a People's Party, Governor John Rogers, for eight years. Uh, and they did a lot of things. They, they, For example, they started putting money from the state into K into the schools, mm -hmm. into grammar schools, mm -hmm. common schools. Mm -hmm. uh, the state actually hadn't put money in before. <clears throat> they passed uh, worker protection laws. <clears throat> they uh, controlled prices of uh, freight on railroads, although that eventually got superseded by federal law. So they did a lot of these things. And then this populist movement, which was farmer labor backed, kind of slowly melded into the so-called progressive movement, which was much more uh, middle-class in character mm -hmm. and more oriented and greater focus on clean government, uh, prohibition, women's vote, mm -hmm. uh, cleaning out gambling and prostitution, uh, and protection of workers in dangerous industries and women. So you look at the topics and they're kind of mixed and yeah. odd to right. us but, but right it was the, it was what the equivalent of the political left that really pushed for prohibition right at, at, at that time um yeah although you wouldn't it's not exactly left it's just different yeah, yeah. It, it it was progressive it was republican it was protestant it was white mm. and the opposition to prohibition was the democrats Immigrants who are in the then is now in the Democratic Party, uh, less middle class, less white, mm -hmm. and Catholic, and because Catholics and immigrants go together, right? It, it was just a a rather different configuration. And how so? How does this all reverb into the into the Constitution, the the Washington, yeah, DNA? So, so uh, a couple of things are going on in. When the state was formed in 1889, you have this small p populist movement going on. It's not large p until 1894 and 96. Okay. But you have this populist undercurrent, farmer concerns, worker concerns, teacher concerns. And uh, that rolls into the Constitution in a lot of ways. First of all, we picked up a lot of provisions from the earlier Jacksonian populist movement, which was also suspicious of big business, uh, suspicious of um, government being taken over by business interests, uh, banking and large 
corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no problem with small business. But the Jacksonians in the say 1840s were were very con very anti big business. So you get provisions then, which were picked up here, uh, for open government, so-called single subject rule. Each piece of legislation has to pertain to a single subject, which right. has to be reflected no in cramming. its title. No cramming and log rolling, pork barreling legislation. Right. So we got that. We you also get a um, uh, you, they blast the executive into smithereens. Instead of just a governor who appoints executive offices like the president does, we in Washington have in the Constitution eight independently elected executive offices. And we mm. have one more since then, the insurance commissioner. But we have governor, lieutenant governor, uh, treasurer, auditor, superintendent of public instruction, commissioner of public lands. None of whom are accountable general. to the governor. Uh, none of them are accountable to anybody else. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's on purpose. And we have elected judges. And all of that is to make sure that the elected officials are responsible directly to the people. That's a populist <clears throat> idea and not, not uh, you know, beholden to big business and elites. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have these kind of back and forth things because you, you have the populist movement, but then the progressive movement, while being progressive, is also more elite oriented. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, later you get the New Deal, which is populist in character. It just goes back and forth. And, and obviously what we've got now nationally is, is Trump grabbing onto this populist spirit, uh, but with not even a smattering of of elites <laughs> to to help run things right, or he's got a smattering, but he doesn't. Um, he doesn't he, trust them. Yeah. He doesn't trust them, right? Yeah. So it's it's a pretty radical situation. Yeah. Actually, have never had anything like that. But anyway, in Washington, we've got these provisions in the Constitution. We also have a lot of anti-business provisions, uh, such as uh, everything from. Uh, no gifts or loans or loans of credit from the government to private enterprise, either for-profit or non-profit, except in aid of the poor and infirm. So there's supposed to be a split in our state, and there is, between the public sector and the private sector. Yeah, you're supposed to keep them separated, and you're not supposed to have government subsidization of the private sector. Mm -hmm. You can look at that as a kind of uh, free enterprise mm -hmm. approach, you can also look at it as a, a no subsidy from people's tax money right. to big business. It's both at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And that was built into the DNA in Washington. And what happens with these state constitutions is that they tend to reflect the, the going political spirit ethos at any particular time in history. Ours is predominantly 1889. It's predominantly populist in character. And these kinds of constitutions, they, they both reflect and then drive politics. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, we, the the pro progressives brought in the initiative and the referendum, which was a populist <clears throat> idea. Right. And, and then that drives how people think of themselves in a the community. And the constitution actually reifies a, a political uh, ethos and yeah. construct, and then it rolls over on itself. So right. that today, if you said, well, we should get rid of the initiative and the referendum, people would say, oh, no, we don't want to do that because we want to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and well, this, this we leads are. me to a question I've, I've long wanted to ask you, actually, which is, doesn't it seem as though sometimes, at least, that initiative process can be hijacked by incredibly powerful interests? Yes. And that's normal because... <laughs> um, Normal in what, what we, sense? Normal everywhere? It happens. Yeah, it always happens. You, you have movements that are more small-D democratic and populist in character. They make differences in good and bad ways. And the elites, and I'm, I, you know, it's fair to include me in elites, mm. uh, just based on my background in education and, and what I've done, you know, in, in my life thus far, have the tools 
it's not just money, but they have the the, the knowledge, the political tools, mm -hmm. understanding yeah. of things. The resources generally. The resources across the board to be able to work with the system yeah. and to eventually get it going their direction. And then you've got to have another shakeup. And that's just how it happens. It's normal. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I think um, of all the Iman stuff over the years and how some of those initiatives really, they wouldn't see the light of day in a committee, right? Yeah, but Iman is cynical. Hmm. He is a, in, in some ways, he's an authentic conservative, but in other ways, he's definitely in this for the money. And How so? Uh, well, he has figured out a way to make a significant living off of running initiatives because he he shops around for issues that also are compatible enough with his thinking, but he shops for issues that he thinks he can pick up major donors for. And then he pays yeah. himself a salary. And then he pays himself a salary and he borrows money from, or moves money around from his different mm -hmm. fundraising adventures. And he's now in huge trouble I have with seen the Attorney that. Yeah. General yeah. for doing that. Uh, but he, he, he's anti-government for sure, but he is in it as a business and he's not the kind of, quite the kind of dedicated mm -hmm. community organizer type that Well, that's, yeah, that's like. sort of, kind of that's my point, I guess. But I, I suppose that that risk still exists, even if you, if it were all legislative, if it were an East Coast uh, state, like where I was born, New York, mm -hmm. And to my understanding, New York not only has no initiative process, but no. has a very powerful legislature. Yes. Um, so, I mean, and you see corruption there all the time. So it's it, it just seems like it's easier to isolate at that point, right? That legislator is corrupt. Let's get him out. Right? Versus this zombie kind of threat from, yeah, from the... Yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, our state's doing okay. Yeah, and, we're doing okay. Right? You know, uh, people can really can pass things that are reasonable. My biggest beef with the initiative <clears throat> is that uh, the majority of initiatives are badly drafted. And as a lawyer and law professor, I hate bad drafting. Yeah. And it just makes a mess out of things. And and the, the good initiatives are typically ones that have been through a few runs in the legislature and gotten crafted in the process, mm -hmm. but they didn't pass. And so then, then activist the takes activists it take it out and then go to the people and get it passed. And those tend to be uh, much better from a technical standpoint. And that means that they work better uh, over, over time. What's a good example of that, of, of a well-crafted um, uh, state? Well, um, one which has really up, uh, pros and cons is the uh, uh, was initiative... 276, which was the open government initiative in 1972 or thereabouts, which was open uh, uh, the public records law, lobbyist registration, campaign uh, spending limits. Mm -hmm. uh, that was drafted by very capable people. It actually didn't, that one didn't go through the legislature, although they'd been working at trying to get things like it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had a great committee, including Bill Newcomb, who was a young uh, activist lawyer who later went to work for the firm, which later represented a young fellow whose dad was in the firm. His, his name's Gates, Bill. Oh. <laughs> and he wound yeah. up as general counsel at, 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 at Microsoft. Uh, Bill did. And he's Bill Newcomb. Bill and Newcomb. he's done a wonderful, he's had a wonderful career yeah. and given back to the community in a lot of great ways. Uh, but he was involved in drafting uh, the, all these open government laws. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they wrote it too well. <laughs> <laughs> because it causes havoc in governments. It's so carefully written yeah. and so uh, kind of radical. But anyway. yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, and another component of our constitution, I know, is that we have, um, and, and, and I'll I totally cop to a certain level of uh, antagonism to this component, and I admit it, but 
we can't tax ourselves. You know, the city, the city, the residents and citizens of Seattle cannot raise up a tax, right? With with uh, obviously some very clear carve outs. There are definite carve outs. Uh, we actually have a fair amount of flexibility in being able to raise property taxes, property and also um, and business taxes. But even business, you get um, into. Being very careful, right? Because the the Dillon laws that our state has. Well, yeah, but this is not a Dillon rule state. Hmm. That means meaning that we are a home rule state, and cities, and arguably count, charter counties, have uh, a lot of tools to uh, run things their own way, and they actually in this state have have good uh, revenue raising tools. We don't have an income tax. And that's what this Seattle litigation is about right now. And that case is a cross between the income tax cases of the early 1930s, trying to rerun those again because they were wrong in the first place, and uh, uh, the home rule powers of cities. And so that case will be decided on either or both of those issues. So you may be one of the first guests I've had that that takes the position that we're that we have flexible taxing. So I'd like to. Yeah, so we do. Help me understand the difference between Dillon and Home. Dillon yeah, rule and Home rule. Sure. So John Dillon was a 19th century, second half of the 19th century lawyer, then judge and law professor. He was a judge. He was on the Iowa State Supreme Court and was a law professor there. And then, and he wrote this uh, Dillon on Municipal Corporations, which was the main 19th century treatise on municipal powers. Mm -hmm. He tried to understand what judges were doing around the country and then reflect that in his book. But as a judge, he was pretty conservative and he actually penned the Dillon's Rule, which is that municipal corporations have only those powers that are expressly granted to them Mm. or necessarily implied. So that means that local governments in those Dillon Rule states, they have to get express statutory authority from the legislature for everything they do. Uh, He was very conservative, and he was suspicious of local governments. He thought they might take everybody's property. Mm. Now... Um, Washington, being populist from the beginning, with a streak of proto-progressivism, with a focus on on local government, we actually were the first state with a true home rule provision in our Constitution, which uh, said that cities of more than 10,000 had the right, or the people of any city of 10,000 or more people, had the right to craft a charter for themselves and structure themselves the way they want. Uh, There were two home rule cities before Seattle, uh, St. Louis and San Francisco, but they were chartered directly by their legislatures. Washington was the first state where local governments had to be formed from the bottom up. They also had a provision that all corporations had to be formed, private corporations, uh, from the bottom up uh, by people according to standing standing laws. They didn't want folks bribing the legislature to get a charter, either corporate or municipal. So very democratic. So they had that. The other thing they they put in our Constitution in 1889 was that uh, cities have all the police power, which means regulatory authority, possessed by the legislature, unless and to the extent that the legislature denies it. That is why uh, SeaTac could pass a $15 minimum wage, and Seattle can pass a law taxing bullets, uh, which is actually taxing but not regulatory, so that's that's not a good example. But the minimum wage is an example, or now we've got uh, various proposals, or maybe they pass it having to do with with protection of hotel workers, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know, those uh, passed yeah. right. Yeah. So, so uh, Seattle can do that because there's no law that says they can't. Mm-hmm. So we have the strong home rule, uh, but Dylan, Dylan's rule is still the predominant rule on the East Coast, 
and in much of the East and some of the Midwest. And as you move West, you get much more home rule. Interestingly, you go North to British Columbia, they're Dylan's rule. Canada's mm -hmm. Dylan's rule mm -hmm. um, for whatever reasons. So that's interesting. So, but, I mean, at the end of the day, raising large sums of money generally comes through either bonding and then, and then, a, and then an income tax of some kind, or you get your, your sales tax, right? Your property tax. Property tax, though, it just has a natural limit that we seem to have reached. And uh, yeah. It, so it, there's a real, you know, an effective yeah. limit. I don't mean a literal yeah. limit. Yeah. Right. So there, there is a literal limit, but there's also an effective. On the, uh, but, but it's important to distinguish between uh, taxes on the one hand and bonds on the other, mm -hmm. borrowing on the other. I, well, the taxes that, pay, help pay back the the bond. Right. Yeah, because yeah, you know, after I uh, worked for Charlie Royer in his in his administration as the staff lawyer in his office in the late seventies, I was going to go to work in the White House for Jimmy Carter, but he didn't get reelected. Oh no! So I said, "Oh, what am I going to do now?" So I, I went back got another law degree, an advanced law degree down at Berkeley, and then I came here. And since nineteen eighty two, I was uh, both teaching and simultaneously working as a public finance lawyer, municipal bond lawyer. Um, and that's actually what got me into the Constitution thing, because mm -hmm. it's all constrained by what you can do is constrained by the state constitution. And I thought this is really interesting, so I started writing about it. Uh, it's different in every state, but in our state, the amount of bonds that can be issued backed by property taxes has a constitutional and a statutory limit. There's no limit on bonds that are backed by non-tax revenues like utility rates. Mm. So you've got these mid-Columbia public utility districts, Chelan, Douglas, Grant PUDs, relatively small populations, but with billions of dollars of bonds out because they're backed by their dams, which produce electricity, which they can sell all over the West. But if it's property tax backed, there's a limit. So. There's that kind of a limit. And Seattle is very careful about its debt limit and managing its debt limit. Then you also have separately, and it is completely separate, limits on, on how much can be charged in property taxes. Mm -hmm. So for cities, it, it is constitutionally and by statute, it's 1.5% of the value of taxable property within the city. Mm -hmm. For Seattle, that is a lot. And Seattle keeps going to the voters for increases in property taxes. And we have different ki other kinds of controls on property taxes. But in Seattle, practically speaking, uh, Seattle can raise property taxes and does with a lot of flexibility. But it takes voter approval Right. Uh, for special programs, and it, it just happens to only take a majority vote. There probably is a political limit. Mm -hmm. We haven't hit that yet. But there is a political limit, I think, for how much the city can get away with. And there's no, there's no real limit on the amount that can be charged for utility rates that the city charges. I mean, there are some limits, but not, not real. The... The tricky thing is, of course, that we don't have an income tax. And that's a state uh, yes. issue, yeah. statewide issue. And it's a, uh, our tax system is terribly regressive because we depend so much on sales taxes, mm -hmm. business and occupation taxes and right. businesses, and then on, on property taxes. And they, the, especially sales taxes and property taxes are regressive. And income tax is what's used in every other, almost every other state, most states, to kind of even things out. Right. Yeah. And that's the one where we just simply, I mean, we'll see, I guess, with the, the status of this, this court case, right. but as things stand, Seattle, if it wanted to, really can't do that. We can't, if we wanted to build, you know, d double the pace of getting a metro, let's say, yeah. and we wanted to pay for that uh, increase with, a, with an income tax on the very wealthy, we, we really can't do that here. Um, Right now, we're going to see. I'm actually yeah. working on that case. I'm a consultant for oh the my. city of okay. Seattle. Are you, allowed to, are you allowed to talk about this? Oh, I, 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 not in any detail, but I just want to disclose yeah. that I, I represent the city of Seattle. You heard it Seattle. here first, listeners. Yeah, yeah right. No, that's, it's on the public record. <laughs> yeah. People on, 
our lawyers on both sides are very good and very thoughtful and are doing a wonderful job. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to and see. And when, when, when do we expect uh, uh, closure? See, that. briefs are being turned in this fall, okay. the next few months, over the next few months. Briefs are coming in October and probably maybe some more in November. Anyway, we get the briefs in this year. Could be argued if the state Supreme Court takes it. We don't know for sure if it mm -hmm. goes there, but I'm pretty sure it will. Makes sense, and then they'll they'll uh, uh, hear it maybe in the spring. Otherwise, next fall, uh, hopefully in the spring they'll hear it. We we'll get a decision of in the next year, so that's going to be 2019, 20. Okay, so we've got a while. So. Okay. We have a interesting. while. Yeah. Is there anything interesting in the next few years where you think? Um, you know, the, the questions we're answering as a city and as a, as a region, let's say King County and, you know, housing, homelessness, growth, you, you know, I, I would say I would put transit in there where the average Seattleite or, or King Countyite uh, would do well to study the Constitution because uh, it will have an impact on those issues. Uh, obviously, the income tax issue is significant uh, because if you care about making sure that there's a fair distribution of well of wealth yeah. to support what you know support the community you want to have an income tax and that's a constitutional issue you know one issue that's actually quite interesting has to do uh, oh this is partly statutory with the flexibility that the commissioner of public lands hmm. and the department of natural resources has to manage state lands in the in a in a long term sustainable way mm -hmm. to preserve endangered species like the marbled muralet, for example, yeah. and at the same time produce adequate revenues. Because under the state constitution, uh, certain state lands that originally came from the federal government were placed in trust for the people and it and to a certain extent to the schools and so there's a tension between the needs and demands of the schools and the short term and the need to manage public uh, wild you know op open space and lands and forests for very long-term sustainable mm -hmm. yields mm -hmm. and protection of species. Yeah. And this is actually a, something where there's a constitutional <clears throat> issue in root, and there's also issues about the f control that the Commissioner of Public Lands to even control her own agency and the, uh, and the public lands. As, uh, as land becomes more, I won't say uh, scarce, it's fixed, but, but it becomes more precious. Pressure yeah. Yeah. Yep. And there's huge pressure because of global warming yep. and everything on yep. these species. Yep. So this is an issue that a lot of people are not aware of, but yep. is actually a significant no, that's a great, issue. That's a great thing to be looking out for. Yeah. Um, we'd like to end every interview with a, a segment we call, if you care about, you should. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. So if you care about something that state government, local government, or national government for that matter, is doing that you're really ticked off about, you, you really do need to get involved. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, it, there's, I think it's a secret, is that it is really, really easy to get involved in public affairs in this state, in the city, in the state. It's just easy as can be. My impression, at least from what I read, I only lived in New York for a year in the city, uh, but my impression is that getting involved in politics, say in New York, Philadelphia, even Maryland, Boston, Chicago, it's not easy to get involved. Mm. You, you've got to join the right clubs. You have to work yourself up from the bottom. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. seniority, you know, and it's not every day that that young woman in, uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, Ocasio Ocasio yeah. yeah. that comes along and blows everything up. Right. That doesn't happen very right. often. That's what we bartenders in Congress. Yeah, yeah. It, does <laughs> it does periodically, but, yeah. but not that often. Yeah. On the other hand, in this city, anybody yeah. can join Just anybody. his or her yeah. local 
Democratic Party organization, get yeah. involved in a nonprofit, yeah. jump in, start working. And in about three months, they're overloaded with tasks yeah. and they can have just as much influence as, as anybody wants. Yeah. The other thing is it is really easy to find your local officials, to talk to them, to lean on them about what you care about. Uh, I, I care. Now, you know, I'm in my 60s. And I'm very concerned about the over-densification that you like to see, mm. and which I used to like to see when I was in my 30s, uh, because then we got kids, and then we got car dependent. It's extremely hard to get around mm. in the, in the way that our grid is laid out. And I think eventually we're all going to be uh, driving electric cars with those new batteries they're coming up with, yeah. and they're not going to be messing up the air and people are going to want to keep cars for many, many things. And so we've got to keep, uh, I think, our in Seattle, our single family neighborhoods and enable people to continue to move around uh, by car, by car. Although I'm somebody who rides his bike yeah. to work every single day, yeah. except when it's really raining horribly, in which case I walk. Yeah. But. Um, that's something I care about. So what do you do? You just get involved yeah. and you lean on people and you talk to people. It's easy to do. Well, I, I couldn't disagree with you more on that's the density fine. issue, but no, the, that's uh, all right. No, but it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Dr. Thank Spitzer. You. I, I yep. really appreciate it. You bet. All right. Take care. Special thanks to Professor Hugh Spitzer. Look for him. Well, everywhere. Music by the Subcons, as you know, Dope Poetry Opening Sample by Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Naboo for sound. Our sponsors are Horizon Books and the Williams Projects of Bright Room Call Day. Get tickets now. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. I am your host, Ian Martinez. And you know what? 